Well, it's truly an honor and a privilege to be with you all today, sharing God's word with you. I, I have been a longtime cheerleader of Harvest Spring Lake, and uh, as I've watched from a distance, God truly blessed this church and blessed the ministry of its leaders. And know this church, you are, you are truly blessed. You are. Um, you are blessed to have pastors like Calvin and like David who unashamedly and uncompromisingly stand for and proclaim the truth of God's word. Listen, society's only getting worse. It's only getting darker, and the church is only becoming more compromised. But when men like Calvin and David stand up and they lead, be encouraged, church, because you know that they're going to proclaim the authority of God's word without apology. And God's word's all that matters. Amen? Well, let me introduce myself to you. My name is Robert Pierre. I am... Uh, been married over seven years to my wife, Nicole, and uh, we have two children. Our son, Timothy, is just over three years old, and our daughter, Judith, is nine, just over nine months old. And so uh, life in the Pierre home is a little busy, as you can imagine these days. Um, I have the privilege at my church in Orlando, Florida, called the Grove Bible Chapel to uh, serve as one of the pastors on staff there. And believe it or not, this kind of feels like a little bit of a, a hometown crowd as so many of you snowbirds and spring breakers and uh, travelers in kind of that wintertime are uh, coming to sunny and warm Florida when Michigan is not that. And, um, and so it's good to be here with you all this morning. Now, as you're getting to know me, I am a very competitive person. Doesn't matter what we're competing in. Doesn't matter what we're doing. I'm coming to win. I want to win. And so I don't know what that is, if that's basketball or golf or wiffle ball or baseball or even the game of life or Monopoly or any board game or card. I'm coming to win. I'm a competitor. It's in my DNA. Uh, however, in many scenarios, I would allow the spirit of competition to get the better of my attitude. And so I would get angry. I would get aggressive. I'd get worked up. I'd start challenging all the calls. And anyone ever like watched a game that LeBron James has played? No, he's just like, hey, hey, you guys didn't call. I was you. He's running all over. And did you guys hear that Space Jam 2 like tanked? Did you guys hear that? <laughs> oh, we're so no. It's too bad. I'm so sorry, LeBron. Oh, my. Now, if you've ever competed against a person like this in sports, you know how unenjoyable it is, right? You know how much you don't really want to do that again afterwards. And so in my case, I would remember my dad would often sit me down beforehand or after the explosion, and he would say, Robert, this was his advice to me. He said, Robert, lose the game and win a friend. Lose the game and win a friend. And you know, when I heard that, I thought that was the most amount of rubbish I had ever heard in my entire life. Lose the game? Lose? How about win? And how about win at all costs? How about win and win and win so much that we're tired of winning? Am I right? Come on, Harvest. You know what I'm talking, right? <laughs> Come on, man. We want to keep winning. <laughs> but you know, the heart of his instruction was not about competition. It was about preserving relationships. See, as a result of my 
anger in competition. Now as an adult, I see the problem. And, and as an adult, I understand what he meant, that this game or whatever we were co competing in was not worth getting so riled up that I would diminish my testimony as a follower of Jesus Christ. And it's things like this that I believe lead to there being a great misconception of Christians in the church in our culture. See, when you ask a non-believing person about church or what it means to be a Christian, you're going to get a variety of answers, right? And what's sad to me is how often people have just written off the idea of even attending a church. And that may be for a variety of reasons. Perhaps that's because people are unwilling to receive and hear truth. And like, I understand truth hurts. It's not popular. In fact, I would go as far as to say that in our society today, truth is under attack. Would you agree? People don't like truth, right? Because what? Truth is like a beacon of light that exposes the darkness. A, a, a truth um, um, cuts deep into the heart with conviction, which can be uncomfortable. And so it should be no surprise to us, church, that society has cast truth away. What does Paul tell us in Romans 1? He says that mankind has exchanged the truth of God for a lie. The thing about truth is truth always demands a response. Always. And people may be willing to struggle with a willingness to submit to whatever that response may be. However, I believe that more often than not, non-believing people avoid attending church because they view Christians as hypocrites. They view Christians as people who say one thing and yet live another way, or people who think they know everything about life, and then so then they just beat down other people and judge them and condemn them and tell them how they're supposed to live. And, 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 and when I think of like that stereotypical, hypocritical Christian, I think of the person who, who just, just wants to tell you everything that you need to do in your life and just beats you down with, with no love and is therefore as melodious as a, as a clanging gong or a clash symbol. No offense to the drummers in the room, all right? We love you guys. We are, we're big fans. Big fans, believe me. Well, now, surely we're not like those people, right? Surely we're not like those hypocrites, right? Not, not us. We're kind. We're gracious. We speak the truth in love. But let me tell you something you may not want to hear today. I am a hypocrite. You are a hypocrite. We are all hypocrites here this morning. Well, why do you say that? Well, I say that because we're all sinners. Each and every one of us is a sinner. Anyone raise their hand and admit that they've sinned and that they're a sinner? Like full audience participation today, right? And if you didn't raise your hand, they have some people down front that you can talk to after about that because we want to learn from you. We're all sinful people. We're all hypocrites. And praise God for the beautiful truth that we did not earn our salvation through any sort of achievement, or, but rather we are justified through faith alone in Jesus Christ. See, it is while we were yet sinners that Christ came and died for us. And so in the church, we imperfect sinners attempt to preach a perfect truth. Right? A truth that calls us not to sin. A truth from God's word that calls us to repent and to turn from sin and rather choose to live a life in obedience to the word and to following how Jesus Christ lived. And 
can you see where the perception of hypocrisy can exist? And so our message to all must remain the same. No matter who comes in the door, no matter what they're wrestling or struggling with, just as Jesus told the woman caught in adultery, go and sin no more. That's our message to all. And you know what? That's not just our message to all, it's our message to us. And we need to be living out that message as much as we are proclaiming it. And we should be giving up sin. This should be the goal of our walks with Christ, to give up sin and to pursue personal holiness, being holy as he is holy. And we should be working on it as much as we're telling other people to. Go ahead and open your Bibles to Matthew 5. Today I want to turn our attention to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. We're going to be in Matthew 5, starting in verse 21. And as a result, we're going to dive into some maybe more deeper, sensitive, personal topics, some topics that maybe people would feel judged or condemned by the preacher who's preaching that content from God's Word. Way to go, guest speaker, right? I'm sure Dan's not going to do something like that, right? You guys, all, like the love for Dan is amazing. Like every service is like cheering. You guys love that guy. However, let me remind you that I have no authority over your life. My words are not authoritative. My sermon's not authoritative. Pastor Cal, Pastor David, they have no authority over your life. God's word has all authority. Jesus Christ has all authority over your life. And so today, we're not looking at just any sermon. We're looking at the sermon of the one who was, is, and forever will be perfect, Jesus Christ himself. These are the, the, the words Jesus preached. These are the red letter words. May, perhaps your Bible uh, has, the print has red letters, and that's to indicate to you that Jesus is talking. And this is what Jesus says. And so let me just be the first to set aside my pride for a moment and just confess to you that I have had to swallow a lot of things this week. I've had to humble myself in order to appropriately respond to God's word today. And let me in that same humility now just turn and challenge you to assess your hearts this morning and to be open and willing to respond accordingly to God's word. And so with that, let's dive into it. Matthew 5, verse 21. If you're there, say, I'm there. Awesome. Here we go. Follow along with me as I read aloud. It says, you have heard that the ancients were told you shall not Murder, And whoever murders shall be guilty before the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says raka shall be guilty before the Sanhedrin. And whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Therefore, if you're presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Truly I say to you, you will not come out of there until you have paid up the last quadrants. Lots for us to dive in and discuss today in this passage. But let's start with our big idea. Our big idea is this. Reconcile your heart to God. That's our big idea this morning. If you're taking notes, you can jot this down. Reconcile your heart to God. Today is all about the heart. And so let me ask you, how is your heart? 
How is your heart? How is your relationship with the Lord? How is your heart today? What we will see Jesus do this morning is he is going to attack the religiosity of the Pharisees. He's going to attack the tradition of the rabbis by exposing that it is less about our actions, but it, and it is more about the attitude behind our actions. And that starts right here in verse 21. Look at that with me again. Look at verse 21. It says, You have, you have heard... The ancients were told, you shall not murder. And whoever murders shall be guilty before the court. Where have we heard this? Where have we heard this? The Ten Commandments, right? Exactly. So right in the beginning, uh, Jesus quotes from Exodus 20, 13. He quotes from Deuteronomy 5, 17, which simply says, you shall not murder. But where have we heard in Scripture that if you murder, you are liable to the courts? And herein lies the problem. Here's where Jesus is about to start to attack the traditions of the rabbis, the Pharisees' religious institutions. You see, God did not say that whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. That's an addition to Scripture. God didn't say that. And as a result, sadly, the Jewish tradition fell short of the biblical standard. Murder is a serious crime. God hates murder. God hates murder because it is the killing of someone made in his image. It is the shedding of innocent blood. And, 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 and when we do that, this is why Genesis 1 through 3 is so important, by the way. Because in that shedding of innocent blood, murder is assaulting the sacredness of the image of God. Now, did you know that murder is, was the first ever recorded crime in human history. Not sin, but the first crime committed was when Cain murdered his brother Abel on account of their offerings. And so how does God say that murder should be punished? Well, if we were to go to Genesis 9, and in Genesis 9, Noah and his family, they're coming off the ark, and they're seeing the rainbow, which God says, I am, I'm, this is a sign that I am setting that I will never destroy the entire earth again by water. And, and they come off, and in Genesis 9, 6, look what God says. He's, he's establishing a new covenant with Noah, and he says this, Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. Like our identity as image bearers of God is extraordinary. God takes it very seriously. We have been fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of Almighty God. And that means that your life is valued by God. That means that your life is intentional. Your life has meaning. Your life has a purpose because you are an image bearer of God. Mankind is an image bearer of God. Therefore, God's penalty for murder is so serious. What is it? It's death. However, the religious leaders of that day in their tradition had relegated the punishment of murder to only being liable before the courts. And in a sense, what the Pharisees were saying is, hey, you must not murder because if you do, you're going to be punished by the courts. What had they done? They had replaced God with the court system. Now, that hasn't happened today, has it? 
Has America replaced God with that of civil court rulings? Yeah, I would say so. I would say so. And while God's intent for government is not to replace himself, but rather to set up a system to punish evildoers and to praise righteousness, we are seeing a moral decline in this country aided by our legal court system. You see, through the courts, America has legalized the killing of millions of unborn children every year through abortion, taking the lives of babies who are being fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of God. And that ought to break our hearts because God takes his image so seriously. And the danger in this is that we allow the courts then to dictate what is and what is not moral rather than simply following God's moral standard that he has set before us in his word. So my question to you is, what is your standard for morality? Who determines what's morally right and what is morally wrong in your life? You see, the Pharisees had made the courts their ultimate judge. And so in a sense, what they'd actually done is they had made man the judge of itself. But we know that the Lord is the righteous judge, amen? And he is coming again to judge the world with equity, Scripture says. And so reconcile your heart to God because he is the righteous judge. And this is why verse 22 is so important. Look at verse 22. Jesus says, but I say to you, pause. There are no five words more significant in this passage than the key right here that Jesus says, but I say to you. And it's important to note that Jesus is not contrasting his teaching with that of the Old Testament, okay? If you go just a few verses earlier, look at verse 17. Jesus comes and he says, hey, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. And so Jesus is not contrasting a new teaching from the Old Testament. Rather, Jesus is contrasting his teaching with the rabbinical traditions. And while the Pharisees were more concerned about the action of murder itself, Jesus is more concerned about the attitude influencing it. He's concerned about the attitude of our hearts. And can you see that it's all about the heart? Can you see that? Turn to your neighbor and say, it's all about the heart. It's all about the heart. Look at verse 22. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be guilty before the Sanhedrin. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Three points this morning. The first one is this. Repress the anger of your heart. Repress the anger of your heart. As we reconcile our hearts to God, we must repress the anger of our hearts. And Jesus has three subpoints in this verse that we've read. Anger, cursing, and slander. Let's look at the first one. Let's look at anger. The Greek word here for anger used here is the word orgizo. Orgizo. Uh, it's used nine times in the New Testament, and it's translated either angry, anger, enraged, or believe it or not, moved with compassion. Kind of a little bit different there, right? 
And that scripture, Jesus looks out and he sees the crowds and it says he's moved with compassion. But in every instance, it directly is referencing not the actions, but the attitude of a man before his or her actions. And what this shows me is that the fruit of our actions really directly stems from the root of our hearts. Question, when was the last time you allowed anger to control your actions? And what were the consequences of that choice? We're all familiar with anger, aren't we? Any golfers in the room? If you're a golfer, you're familiar with anger. Excuse me, frustration. Just frustrated at ourselves, not anger, just frustrated. You're, you're, if you're a golfer, you are um, familiar with anger. Now, let me tell you something. I don't know what it is about people from Michigan, but they all can golf. You may not be great, but you're, you're typically never bad. All right, some guy came up to me last night and was like, well, then you haven't met me. I was like, all right, well, but, but I, uh, I have a, a friend of mine in Orlando, Florida, and he is originally from Michigan and moved down to Orlando about three or four years ago. And uh, we were talking a lot about golf. I, I love to play golf. I, I try to go out as much as I can. I watch it. I play it. And uh, so he was like, hey, I'd love to go. So we went out to the driving range together, and he's like, I haven't swung a club in four years. I was like, all right, well, we probably shouldn't go to a course. Let's go to the range first and kind of see where you're at, all right? And uh, so he comes out, and he hasn't swung. He says, I haven't swung a club in four years. So he brings his bag out, and his bag's all dirty. You know, he's got cobwebs, dust. He's, like, brushing it off, you know? And it's like, oh, how's this going to go, right? And uh, he takes out his glove, and he, since he hasn't seen the glove in four years, it's, like, decaying, you know? So, like, it's, like, flapping around in the wind. He's got it put on, right? He's got a big old rip, whatever. I don't even know why he continued to wear it. And uh, so he's up there, and he's taking a couple practice swings. I'm like, let's see how this goes. I kid you not. First shot, just beautiful stripe right down the middle. No fade, no hooks, no slices. Just, and then he just continued to do that all morning. I was like, it's because you're from Michigan. <laughs> I don't know what it is, but there must be something in the water. Oh, no, that's Flint. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. He's from Flint. What do you, what'd you guys think I was saying? <laughs> my Uncle David... And uh, whom you know very well, and my uh, my father have been golfing together for over thirty years, and um, my father would say that my uncle David is his best and most loyal friend in the world, and um, I share this because what I'm going to share is that before they were pastors, anger and golf could sometimes become mixed together. And uh, they would often compete against each other. And uh, we'd come out, our, our family would come and visit in the summer. And, and so it was always fun in the beginning of the summer. It's like, oh, yeah, you know, he beat me here, I beat him. And then by the middle of the summer, that kind of stopped. And then by the end, it was like everybody was really tense, you know, because who's going to win? We only have like two more matches left and we're tied and we got to come to the end. And, and if you were one of the children or the cousins who was able to go out with the dads, like you had this the tension was there. Like you had this little sense of like you had to become what I'm going to call like a cheerleader. And I'm going to just kind of, because he's not here, I'm going to just kind of say, you know, Pastor Cal is a great cheerleader. And uh, so he'd sit in the cart and whenever Uncle David would hit a clutch putt, which he does all the time, um, Calvin would be like, yeah, yeah, you know? And it'd be like, you're losing all of us, man. Like, you know, like what's going on, right? But um, <laughs> unfortunately, golf can become an angry 
sport, can't it? Now, all humor aside, that was a long time ago. As long as I've ever competed with my uncle, he's one of the few honorable, self-controlled sportsmen I know. Whenever he plays bad, he always maintains his self-control. I haven't seen him play bad, but when he does, he maintains his self-control. When we allow anger to fill our hearts, it leads to ungodly actions, doesn't it? You know, just thinking about golf, I never play better when I'm angry. Like, it's never the thing that I need to channel and then play better. I always play worse. Because when we become angry, uh, it can lead us to act in some of the most nonsensical ways. And see, here's the scary thing. We sit here this morning and we kind of humorously condemn anger. It's a funny illustration, right? We've all been there. We've all experienced that. Uh, uh, but, but we're condemning the fruit of the anger, right? Jesus sees and condemns the root of our fruit, which is our hearts. And while Jesus... What, what he's really saying to them and, and really what he's saying to us this morning is like, hey, hey, do not listen to the Pharisees and the scribes, right? They say that you are only in danger of judgment if you actually murder a man. But what I say to you is that if you are angry in your heart without righteous cause, uh, the same demand and the same punishment of the law is upon you. Question, do you harbor anger in your heart? Do you harbor anger or bitterness in your heart? And what effect does that anger have on you? What effect does your anger have on those around you? Repress the anger of your heart. Again, Jesus says in verse 22, And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be guilty before the Sanhedrin. Now, perhaps your Bible reads whoever insults his brother or whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing. And that's because we have this interesting Greek word called raka. Now, raka is not translated, it's transliterated. And the reason for that is that um, raka, there's no modern word in our language that fits raka. So it's transliterated, you know, things like insults or, or uh, uh, derogatory terms of contempt or slander. There, there's no modern equivalent in our language to raka. And you may scratch your head on that a little bit and say, well, then what do we, what does that mean? Well, I went to the University of Florida for four years, the University of Central Florida, excuse me, and uh, I could think of a few words that I heard tossed around that have no modern equivalent in another language. You guys get the point. And so what Jesus says is that in calling your brother Raka, you are guilty of the Supreme Court. Not Kavanaugh, Gorsuch, or ACB. No, no, no. But he's talking about the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin, the special counsel who were called upon to try the most serious of offenses and pronounced the most severe of penalties. He even takes it a step further. Look on. Jesus says, and whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Calling someone a fool, a moron, or an idiot out of anger and hatred makes us guilty enough to go to hell. And, and I just have to be honest with you and just say, I, I've been, I was convicted by many things in the preparation of this message. In a spirit of transparency, one of those has been an eye-opening realization of the words I use when I am angry at someone behind their back. Like, I for sure have done this. 
I for sure been like, well, that guy's just an idiot. Just a moron. Guy's just a fool, right? And Jesus says that in saying those words, we are guilty enough to go to hell. That's convicting, isn't it? Boy, that's convicting. It's eye-opening. God is not honored when we are unrighteously angry at or curse or malign another person made in his image. And when we do, we are guilty. That's the key word, guilty. Not, Not wrong, not misguided, not having made a mistake, not needing improvement, not a work in progress. No, 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 we are, we are guilty. We're guilty. And so we must humble ourselves and shatter our illusion of self-righteousness because under this heavenly standard given to us by the Son of God himself, we are all murderers here in the room this morning, each and every one of us. And this is why we're labeled hypocrites, right? Because, because we're all sinful people and Jesus says that we are guilty, We're not indicted to the crime. We're not awaiting a trial. We are guilty. I am guilty. But the beauty of the gospel is that it was not in our perfection that we were saved. It was not as a result of our righteousness that we were shown grace. Rather, while we were yet sinners, and even though we were dead in our sins, and even though we are guilty, Christ reached out to us and died for us and so that we may have forgiveness of our sins and so that uh, he might bestow upon us his righteousness. Praise the Lord, amen? 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, he made him, God made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And, And you see, this is what the Pharisees didn't understand. They didn't understand this. Righteousness is not external. Righteousness is Jesus Christ. And we need to be pursuing that with all of our heart and with all of our mind and with all of our soul and with all of our strength. Are you pursuing that? Are you pursuing righteousness with everything you have? Reconcile your heart to God because he's worthy of it. He's worthy of it. Look on, look at verse 23. Therefore, if you're presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. Much has been made about these verses as it pertains to relational reconciliation and we're gonna discuss that in a moment. But the heart behind this, these verses is not relational reconciliation. It is reconciling our heart to God. It is reconciling our worship. And so that's our second point this morning. Reconcile your worship. Reconcile your worship. See, righteousness is not external. It's all about the heart. And therefore, God is not pleased with our worship when it comes from an unreconciled heart. And see, this is where the Pharisees missed it. All right? Uh, And oh, would we not be a Pharisee today, church? Would we not be a Pharisee today? See, this is where the Pharisees thought they could just kind of worship their way into righteousness. They could worship their way out of guilt. They could worship their way into covering up their sin. Do we ever try this? Do we ever do this in our life? Well, I'm going to come to church today, and I'm just going to bring more of an offering than I should. 
I'm going to bring more of an offering than I need. I'm going to, I'm just going to, I'm going to bring more because that's going to make me more righteous or, or I'm going to, I'm going to worship even louder. Like if I was singing loud the other, last week, this is 120%, man. And, and this is not a one hand raised Sunday. It's a, it's a double hander. I'm going to worship even louder today and I might even cry. Or when I pray, oh, I'm going to pray for a long time and my voice is going to move and sway and I'm going to use words that you have to look up in a dictionary afterwards because that is going to make me more righteous. But it's not about our externals, it's about our hearts. Ceremonial sacrifices cannot cover up moral failure. And God got to a point where he resented Israel for their festivals of worship on account of their unreconciled hearts. Through the prophet Isaiah, God told the Israelites, look at this, he said, What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle, and I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity in the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. We must reconcile our hearts to God if we are to reconcile our worship of God. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, and this absolutely rocked me. He writes, In the sight of God, there is no value whatsoever in an act of worship if we harbor known sin. That just, that stings, doesn't it? Today, are you trying to come and worship God while you harbor a sin in your life? Are you bringing your worship today while you harbor a known sin in your life? See, this is why Jesus tells us that if while we're presenting our offering at the altar and, and they're coming to worship the Lord, we remember that someone has something against us, like keep God waiting Leave your offering at the altar and go and be reconciled because our worship is of no value if we harbor a known sin. And so reconcile your worship. And that means that we must be reconciled to one another. I had to live this out recently. There's a relationship that in my life that I have that just is not good. And uh, I, in reading this passage, said to the Lord, okay, Lord, is there anything that I have done? Is there any way that I have wronged this person that I should come and, and confess to them and seek to make right? And sure enough, when you ask the Lord those things, he answers. Put something right on my heart all the way back from 2014. I was like, ah, okay, you know. And I had to send a text to this person. And, and what the Lord's going to do with that it's in his hands. We'll see. I'm sorry. I remember this thing happened in 2014. I was wrong. I'm seeking your forgiveness. I'm only accountable to do what the Holy Spirit convicts me to do. We are only responsible for that. So what about you? What about you? Is there anyone in your life 
right now that the Holy Spirit is laying on your heart that you need to go and be reconciled with? You see, in the realm of reconciliation, I am not necessarily accountable to confront others on their sin, but I am accountable to confess to others my sin against them. This is why reconciliation is a difficult task. It requires humility. It requires self-sacrifice. On the other end, it requires compromise and grace. But reconciling to one another is righteous. It honors the Lord. And the key for reconciliation that reconciles our worship is found in Romans 12. And it reads this, If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. If possible, as far as it depends on you, Scripture says, be at peace. And this means that we may need to lay aside our pride in order to be at peace in all relationships. Now, there's three things about reconciliation I want to draw your attention to this morning. And the first one pertains specifically to marriage, all right? Uh, And that's this. Reconciliation is essential in every marriage. It is. Issues are going to rise. Tempers are going to flare. Discussions are going to turn into arguments. You're going to disagree. And people will choose to sin. But reconciliation with our spouse is a righteous action. And praise God when it leads to the restoration of a marriage. Praise the Lord for that. And you know, that may require one to lay aside their, their justifications, their, their, their rightness, if you will, and, and in order to truly be reconciled. Because reconciliation is difficult. But it is a worthy endeavor and one we should not lose patience with, with our spouse. You know what that means? It means that there may be someone in the room today who's been wrong and they need to admit that they were wrong. And there may be someone in the room today who has been wronged to be willing to show forgiveness. Because listen, church, there are no enduring relationships without forgiveness. Okay, moving on from marriage now and solely focusing on external relationships. Second thing is this, reconciliation, listen to this, this is important. Reconciliation does not necessarily yield restoration. Reconciliation does not necessarily yield restoration. Sometimes it does, and praise God for those times. There may be a relationship that, that, that there's so far gone, it can never come back. And then God does something amazing. He either uses you or he uses that person to bridge the gap. And there is a beautiful restoration, and that's something that only God can do. And we praise the Lord for that. But there are other times where reconciliation is simply just getting to a place of peace with the other party. Where you come and you say you're wrong and they come and say that they're wrong and there's reconciliation there and there's peace, but the relationship, be it professional or personal, cannot be restored to what it was. I can think of people in my life who have slandered me, who have betrayed me, who have said all kinds of false things against me. We can have peace in our relationship and then sometimes you have to offer forgiveness even when it's not asked for. But that restoration of relationship, it can't happen. But reconciliation still can. Third thing is this. Reconciliation can be one-sided. 
Reconciliation can be one-sided. And, and the key for that is found in that Romans 12, 18 verse, which is where it is in your power and as far as it depends on you, be at peace. Sometimes you may extend the olive branch and it's not reciprocated. You may lay yourself out there and say that I'm, I'm, I was wrong and it's not received. I remember there was a gentleman, uh, like my Aunt Kristen said, I've been, had the privilege of leading worship for about 11 years now. And um, there was a gentleman at an older church where we had a disagreement and a falling out. And I know that in my youth, there were some things that I, I did wrong and I didn't handle that right. Now, in the same vein, there was things he really did not do well. And I'm not trying to knock him. I'm just saying that both of us had our wrongs. And a number of years later, the, the Holy Spirit really convicted me that I needed to reach out and to repent of the wrongs in that situation. So I, I called him up on the phone and I got his voicemail and I knew it was his voicemail because it had his, his name still on it. And I was like, okay, I actually called the right number. You know, I still have it. And I just, I left a voicemail and I said, I was been thinking a lot about this and I was wrong and I would love your forgiveness. I'd love to talk with you about this even more. And he's never called me back. And that was years ago. But as far as it was in my power, where it was dependent on me, I, I've done all I can to reconcile and be at peace. Listen, we are only responsible for what we do. And we have to follow and obey the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes that's reciprocated and praise the Lord for that. Other times you have to leave it out there and know that you've done everything in your power to be at peace. In order to reconcile our worship, Jesus instructs us that we must, where it is in our power, be reconciled in our relationships. You see, the goal is to pursue personal holiness and righteousness, to being holy as he is holy, to living and loving and acting like Jesus in all the things that I say and I do. And this is pleasing to the Lord and is the fruit of one whose heart is reconciled to God. Remember something, these are red letter words from a, from a sermon given by a perfect Savior. And what I love about this passage is that Jesus gives us the application. He exposes our need in verses 21 through 22. He shows us how to reconcile it in verses 23 through 24. And then in 25 to 26, he shows us the urgency behind what we're called to do. Look at verse 25. It says, Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with them on the way, so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Truly I say to you, you will not come out of there until you have paid up the last quadrants. So, our third point this morning is this rapidly make peace. Rapidly make peace. You see, in that time period of Roman law, a plaintiff could bring the accused with him to face the judge. And on their way to the judge, they could work out the dispute and they could come to an agreement and they could return on their merry way. But at the point that they entered into the court, that opportunity was gone. The judge was going to rule and his ruling would stand. And so what Jesus is saying here is he says what? In verse 25, make friends what? What's it say in your Bible? Make friends What's that? Say it loud. Quickly. We need to rapidly make peace. The idea is this. The time for reconciliation is now. It's right now. Where it is in your power, Jesus says, with your opponents. 
not with your family that loves you or your friends who get along well with you or your neighbors or, or people who, whom you know really well. Jesus says, with your opponents, be reconciled quickly. How many opponents do you, you need to make peace with? How many opponents in your life do you need to make peace with? And Jesus uses this illustration to show us that the time to reconcile is now, not tomorrow. Tomorrow is often too late. The time is now. And so who do you need to reconcile with today? Ephesians 4.26 says this, Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. The time to reconcile is now. And I would imagine that in a room this size, there are many relationships in need of some form of reconciliation. And the truth is, it's all about our hearts. And in our hearts, it's very easy to allow anger and hate and contempt and slander to fester. And I do not believe that that is honoring to the Lord. And so the challenge to us today is this, search your heart first. And look, I caution you on this. Because if you go to the Lord and you start to ask those questions of God, who do I need to be reconciled with? What sin have I committed against somebody else? Guess what? God's going to answer you. And he may give you an answer you really don't want to hear. But assess your heart. Sadly, you know what we do instead? We like to create lists. We like to list out all the people who've wronged us. Well, this person said this, this person this. This person needs to come to me. This person wronged me. So if I need to reconcile, they need to come to me. And listen, if that's you today, that's, that's the wrong attitude to carry. That's the wrong attitude to have. Don't be someone else's Holy Spirit. You're, you're not good at it. The thing is assess your heart. Jesus says, if you're presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go first be reconciled. Assess your heart, church, and ask God if there are relationships in your life that you need to go and be reconciled to. Beyond just interrelationally, maybe today your heart has never been reconciled to God. Perhaps you've been living your life and living for your own ways, working for your own pleasures, looking for whatever's going to bring you satisfaction or you significance or you power or you authority, and yet your life today still feels empty as a result. Maybe you blame God for things that have happened in your life, but maybe today for the first time you realize that all those things that have happened in your life were just merely a consequence of the own actions and the own choices that you made. Is your heart reconciled to God? Have you ever reconciled your heart to God? And if not, what do you need to do? What hard choices do you need to make in order to reconcile it to God? For some, that may be giving up a known sin in their life. I'm gonna repent of this sin. I'm gonna leave it there. And I'm gonna turn and I'm gonna pursue Christ-likeness. But maybe for you, maybe today, 
you need to respond to an invitation to confess Jesus Christ as Lord of your life, to be reborn into hope that can only be found in Jesus Christ, to let go of your sin, to let go of control of your life, and to pursue Christ instead. Church, the time for reconciliation is now. Reconcile your heart to God. Don't wait. We're not guaranteed tomorrow. Tomorrow may be too late. The time is now. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this church, and I thank you for these people who love you and who love your word. And God, I believe that there are people today in this room who are walking through seasons of adversity, be it in relationships with one another, be it in a relationship with you, God. And I pray today, Father, that Holy Spirit, you would come and you would convict these lives of uh, people that they need to go and be reconciled to. Would you convict these people of the sin in their life and expose it to them, God, that they would either choose to go and repent of it to uh, their brothers and sisters in Christ or their family members or their neighbors or their coworkers or whomever that is, Lord. But more importantly, God, would they repent of it to you and would they leave that old life in the past and would they choose to pursue new life that is only found in your son, Jesus? You are everything we need and you are so good. So Father, as we respond to you now, would we lay down our lives, trusting you, believing in you. And Lord, would you do an amazing work through these people. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for who you are. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.